0: Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map: Stories of Adventure and Expeditions as Told by Those Who Live Them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions started simply with a map and a glass of whiskey, a desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome, come on in. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Bruce Barron. Bruce Barron is a professional expedition guide, explorer, and photographer. Bruce began guiding backpacking and mountaineering trips at the age of 15, and has since led expeditions to the remote jungles, mountains, forests, and deserts around the globe. He has explored uncharted areas in the Andes, Himalayas, Amazon Basin, in West Papua New Guinea. Most notable of these is the Baron pickard Heath River Expedition in 1996, which discovered the source of the Heath River in the Peru-Bolivia Amazonian Basin. The Heath River delineates the border of Peru and Bolivia for 350 kilometers from the Amazon Basin lowlands into the Amazon Cloud Forest. The expedition's objective was to follow South American explorer Colonel Percy Fawcett's 1910 expedition route and then continue on to discover the still unknown source of the Heath River and make the first river descent. Bruce, welcome. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Good to see you. Uh, I'm glad to be here, Mike.
0: Now, the job title professional explorer, that's a dream job for a lot of folks, getting paid to explore the wilds around the globe. How did you become a professional explorer?
1: That's a funny, uh, a funny idea, isn't it? I got it because I had always, as a child, read adventure books, been fascinated with all of these uh, expeditions and explorations I had always read about. And uh, when I was about 12, I read a book. I don't remember it. It might have been two years before the masks. One of those classic uh, sail, sailing versions. Uh, exploration uh, novels I read that there was a 11 year old cabin boy that had been around the world twice and then I looked at myself I'd never been around my block twice you know I'd never been out of the country I've never been out of my state wasn't raised uh, with a silver spoon so I didn't have money to do those things and I thought the world had passed me by that um uh, You know, the age of exploration had ended for me and there's nothing I could do, which, of course, was silly. Uh, Later on in my life, I actually became an artist for a while. I taught art and uh, sold in galleries. And I became kind of an obsessive person where I was working 100 hours in the studio trying to become a a good artist. And I burnt myself out. So uh, for three or four years there. I um, did anything I could to get by. And part of that was uh, exploring, you know, on a boot string and a glass of water. I'd go wherever I could and I'd climb mountains and I'd uh, go to the most remote places I could think about. But I was when I was young, I was actually in the Boy Scouts. There was a kind of an extended version called the Explorer Scout in that I became a backcountry guide. If, I was actually at the age of 14 I was guiding people to the highest mountain in, in my area, which was San Gorgonio and uh, it was kind of funny because I would bring groups of uh, men and, and boys normally, sometimes uh, women and it took two days to climb this mountain and I would on this on the second day we'd climb in about eight miles and then camp at a lake and then uh, I would have to tell the people who I thought, had the the grit to make it to the top because it was a fairly good climb after that it's so strange for this 12 year old kid you know telling these 40 year old men wow i'm sorry i'm sorry john i don't think you can make it you know well, this person and this person could go and that uh, was kind of a funny situation
0: now how do you make it pay i mean that's the 64 dollars question a lot of people out there are asking is how do i how do I get paid to go out there and do this?
1: right well if you're if you're talking about making a good living, I haven't learned that yet. but uh, if you could care about having a life of exploration and uh, paying your bills, what I did was when I became a little older, I decided, hey, maybe there should be some kind of adventure travel. maybe there should be expeditions or or minor expeditions or or travel that a normal person could go on and go to these super remote areas and then know that they could get back in time for their work. Maybe go on a three three week vacation and go somewhere that very few people or no outsiders have been to, which is um, a silly idea if you want to make money. It's a great idea if you want to explore things. And of course, that's what I did. I would organize expeditions to a a new remote area maybe on new new uh trails or unknown trails that people didn't know about and uh, i would get people to go on these things that had never experienced things like that and yet they got back to work on time and because each time uh, each trip i wanted to make unique you can't make any money doing that you know you need to do the same thing over again you have to have a uh, a stable of guides that can guide things all the time. But I guided them all myself because I enjoyed it. I wanted to do that for my life's work. And uh, it's uh, I, I'm a billionaire in experience. Money, not so much, but it doesn't matter. I, there are more important things than that for me.
0: Well, I always thought that the richest people are the ones that are sitting around the old folks' home and have the best stories.
1: Now, I'm with you there 100%. Absolutely.
0: Now, in all of your adventures, you must have come across a lot of exotic foods and drinks. Do you have a, do you have a good uh, drinking story for us?
1: Yeah, I've got a couple. I know you asked me one time about my favorite alcoholic drink. I can't tell you that, but I can tell you my, my least favorite alcoholic drink. And that is a drink I had in, um, in the deep Amazon. I know there's a village of Warani people that I've been going to for many, many years. And the first time I went there, they're, they're um, naked tribal people hunting with blowguns and spears. And the first uh, time I went there, I went on a hunt with this uh, nice guy that I became very good friends with. And he brought me back to his hut after the hunt. I mean, he's he's naked. He has a hut with a pot, uh, a blowgun, a spear, you know, and a fishing net. That's it. And he offers me this gourd of uh, what I knew as chicha. Chicha is a, its a mildly alcoholic drink, usually made from corn. But in this case, it's made from yucca or uh, manioc, cassava-like. Unfortunately, I knew how it was made. So I grabbed the gourd. And, you know, you're offered something. You, you don't want to be impolite. You, and sometimes that impoliteness can be dangerous, you know in tribal situations. But anyway, I, I downed the gourd as quick as I could. Then he's seeing how much I liked it, and this is what you should never do, is what I did. He quickly took his gourd and, and uh, filled it up and gave it back to me. Well, the way they make their chicha with uh, yucca is they take this yucca root and they chew it until the village women get together, and they chew this yucca into a mush, and then they spit it into a communal pot. And their saliva aids to the fermentation, the alcohol making of this stuff. So, um, yes, I was drinking the village women's spit. And, what did it uh, tastes like? Well, it wasn't so bad, you know. I mean, I've I've eaten and drunk so many strange worms and insects and snakes, you know. It, it, it's not so bad, but a uh, little bit of alcohol. But it's just the thought, you know. This lumpy, you know. Slimy, you know. All you can think about is a spit in that situation, you know. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've eaten some really bizarre things, but I think uh, the other thing that stands out to mind is uh, it's really not that bad. But it was uh, butter tea. I was in on the Tibetan plateau in Ladakh. I was uh, traveling with a friend. I was about uh, thirteen thousand feet on the, on the only road. On this uh, kind of moonscape, uh, high Tibet, uh, Himalayan plateau, my Ladakhi friend was driving, and we saw this circus tent. What appeared to be this kind of a large circus tent in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's no, there was no villages, there was no uh, huts, there was no houses, nothing for miles and miles around. It was such a strange, surreal experience. And he said, "Oh, you'll like this," you know. And I just met this guy, and we had the camaraderie. He knew a bit. We used to joke around a lot. And so um, we, uh, we drove up to the hut and got out, and he took me to the opening, which were some uh, skins that were folded over. And he opened up the folds, and we peered in, and it was the most incredible sight. There were about, I think, 80 maybe Ladakhí people there. The women are really distinctive. They wear this really interesting uh, traditional dress. They First, they have a furred uh, yak skin over their, their back, then they have a headdress made from woven yak wool, which is kind of an interesting, uh, looks like these two gigantic ears that come above their, their head, and then a piece of leather that comes from their neck back down to below their butt that is studded with a silver-encased turquoise stones. Just really very interesting and unique, something you'll never see anywhere else in the world. So, there were several of these women dancing around this large tent pole, and then there were a series of boxes that were about maybe 30 or 40 feet long that they had carried all this stuff in, that they had pillows on either side of it, and then there were Ladakhi people sitting on the pillows, drinking and eating something. Well, my friend. And at that time, I hesitate to call him my friend. Uh, we're looking through. I'm in, slightly in front of him. He's looking over my shoulder. He pulls back the flap all the way and he puts my, his foot in my back and he kicks and pushes me into the center of this. And then he and then he folds the, uh, uh, the door of the flap of skins shut and he holds it tight so I can't get out.
0: Talk about uh, crashing a party.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And so, uh, and I had no idea. I hadn't studied. I did not known these people. I didn't know this area. So, of course, the music stops, the dancing stops, everybody that's eating and talking stops, and there's 80 or 100, you know, sets of eyes staring at me. You know, I'm thinking, sometimes it's dangerous to do things like that, right? But uh, immediately, uh, there's two people at the front of this 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 table of sorts. They run over to me. A man and a woman, young man and woman, and they grab my arms. They're talking to me in Tibetan. I don't know any Tibetan. They pull me over to the uh, head of the table and they sit me down on a pillow. And then immediately they bring me two drinks. They bring me uh, some rice wine, which I drink quickly. That's that's fine. That's great. And then they bring me some butter tea. In Himalayan countries, uh, it's a staple. Usually, it's maybe. Um, a half filled of black tea and then a half filled with butter, thick butter. And uh, that's, you know, when you live at altitude, you need those calories to stay warm. And so it's a staple that people drink. In this case, it was uh, yak butter and it was about 80% yak butter and about 20% tea. And the yak butter was uh, lumpy and smelled really, and it was a little hair in there and it smelled like an old yak. A yak is like a kind of a high altitude cow or or a bull that lives at uh, at very very high altitudes in Himalayan. So anyway, I did the same thing, and this was after I had been in the in the rainforest and I knew what I did. I drained it, and in in, in, during this time, all eyes are looking at me because I'm assuming now that this was, you know, uh, a way to accept that I'm in there. their their midst, and I'm part of the group if I drink this. Anyway, I downed it, and it was horrible. I mean horrible. It tasted like rancid butter, but it was lumpy. I had to chew it, most of it going down, and the same thing. Oh, you like it, you know, and they, in their words, uh, brought me over and filled it up, and fortunately, I took a long time to drink the rest of it, but then everybody got back to it. The dancing started, and later I found out that there are three things in Ladakhi culture that they have celebrations for one is a birth one is a death and one is a naming or christening not not christian christening but a naming of their child and uh that was a birth of their child and in that culture to have that buddhist culture there to have an outsider just arrive from nowhere like we did it was a great blessing you know it was good karma so uh, I, I was a blessing for the event, and and uh, but of course my friend didn't tell me this. You know, we had some words afterwards, and a few drinks of something else, but it was a good time.
0: Now you spoke about eating some pretty strange foods. What's the strangest thing you've you've had to consume?
1: Oh, geez, there's been so many. You know, uh, well, I can tell you one that actually on this expedition that we're talking about that saved my life pretty much, and. It's not, it's not exotic, but um, we got to a point where um, we were starving, I'll tell you later. But um, I, at the end of the expedition, I started out weighing about 190 pounds of 6'1", and very muscular So at that time, and um, I was in great shape. I was thin, and by the time I ended, I can't tell you what my weight was, at the worst of it, because there was a boat that I got on at the end of the expedition, and for a week on that boat and getting ready to fly out, all I did was eat. I didn't move more than twenty feet, I don't think, because I was starving. It was we were literally starving at the end of the expedition. So, at the end of that week, doing nothing but sitting on a boat and eating, I was still forty pounds under what I was still like one hundred forty pounds or fifty pounds, uh, forty pounds light. So who knows what I was? But when I got back to the uh, to the United States, my wife walked past me three times. I was waiting for her to pick me up, and uh, uh, another guy that went on the expedition, the one other guy, his uh, his kid, well, I think she was, she was about six. He went to hug her, and she screamed and ran away from him. We we looked so bad, you <laughs> know. But uh, anyway. What saved us were turtle eggs, which no big deal. We ate some raw turtle eggs. The interesting thing was we had some uh, raw plantains or raw bananas. And they were only about two inches, three inches uh, long, but they they were hard as a rock. Literally, I had to smash them to open them. I couldn't cut them with a knife even. So they were as green as green can be. They tasted like turpentine if you were to eat them first. But the native people tell me that, any plantains, or at least in that area, any bananas, no matter what age they are, if you boil them until the peel split off, they're edible. And indeed, they were. They taste like like nothing. Like if you're eating a cloud, you know, there's absolutely no taste and very probably very very few calories. But they filled our bellies, and and that was a good thing. But uh, as far as the the thing that I didn't like. It seems like all the weird things that you eat, they don't taste so bad. You eat insects and things like that. They're not bad, you know. One time I had to eat a lot of ants because I was starving somewhere, and, and they just taste like uh, kind of like lemons, you know. They have this, uh, forget the, the type of acid that tastes gives you a taste of lemons. But I was in the uh, uh, New Guinea on an expedition and uh, was offered some uh, sago worms from uh, some natives there. Sago worms, they're, they're like, uh, they're about an inch long and ribbed and, and super thick, th- these uh, larvae of the Capricorn beetle. And they live in uh, a sago palm. After a sago palm comes down, they, um, in the rotten bark, and, and sometimes the natives down a tree just to get those sago beetles, as long, along with the sago starch that they eat. But um, they're uh, big, thick, undulating, nasty looking off white worms you know when you eat them they they spurt there's a lot of juice in there and then they they continue wiggling on the way down no matter how much you chew so i, I think that's the one thing that uh i dislike the most
0: i gotta ask again what did it tastes like
1: now the ones that i had had them i had eaten some that we cooked up and they were fine they didn't taste like anything but those had a really—I uh, don't know if it was a particular uh, worms, a particular tree—but they were they were very sharp, kind of acid-like, and slimy. Oh, that they were just—they were. Just, I was prepared for anything, and it was worse than I thought it was going to be. Let's say.
0: But once again, the uh, the risk of offending and not accepting.
1: Yeah, yeah. In that case, uh, it was pretty high because. Uh, well, I'll tell you. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about these guys these guys I was in this was in uh, New Guinea and I was traveling to uh, an extreme area where some Korowai people live now some people know about the Korowai but this is a really I- extreme remote location of Korowai Korowai people live in tree houses they're unique in the world uh, not that they live in tree houses many uh, tribal people do but their tree houses can be over 100 feet high incredible And there's only one reason for that, and that's because uh, if you shoot an arrow at somebody 100 feet high, you have less of a chance of hitting them, you know. So it's for protection from other tribes. And um, many of these – and the the communities are very small. Sometimes it's just a family on one treehouse that um, is – you know, you might have three guys and four or five women living in just one treehouse, and that's their whole – you know, tribe, that's their whole village, you could say. So I was in uh, going, trying to find this really remote Korowai country, and it was extremely remote to get there. It took four flights. It took uh, a day on a truck. It took three days on a dugout, a motorized dugout, and then it took a week traveling in just to get to this area. But uh, we got to the last village before we headed into the super remote area, which was getting there, as I as I just said, and we had to organize for some porters. Now, these guys had been, some of them had been on expeditions before, but when I say an expedition, maybe once every couple of years, something like that, you know, uh, maybe botanists have been into the area, something like that, or an anthropologist. So, we were arranging for porters. I was talking with the head man there. It took about a day. I was just pulling my hair because usually it doesn't take that long, but This is a village, totally isolated. The only time they ever get anything that resembles any kind of, uh, uh, well, you would say some kind of monetary, you know, whether it's trading goods or anything, is this odd expedition that comes in there. And very few had ever been in there. And so um, it took a day to negotiate which uh, members were going to come on the expedition. So we finally figured it out. Everybody's loaded up and we're heading out of the village, and the village is in a cleared area on the bank of, a, of the river. There were about eight huts in the village, kind of on each side of a path, and then beyond the last village went into just high rainforest canopy. So I'm leading the group, and we're walking between the huts. We get to the last hut, and across this the, the path are this X of Bamboo, these big bamboo logs that are x across it. Now, I mean, that's the international symbol for, hey, don't go that way, right? So I uh, I turn the group, and I, we go around the back of this, uh, this hut. And just as we're going around the back of the hut, somebody bursts out of the uh, entrance of this hut with uh, a naked guy with his bow drawn, an arrow notched, a bow drawn, pointed straight at me about 10 feet away from me. I didn't have time to even duck or run. But just at that moment, a couple of the guys from our group jumped the guy, knocked him down, and they pulled the, the bow away from him. They're struggling. The guy grabs his bow back, knocks it, picks it up, and again, he's pointing it at me. And uh, and I say, let's book. And so we head out. They grab him again and knock down. And I, did, I told them, don't look back until we hit the bush because uh, anyway, that's what we did we just kept going. And finally, I, uh, we got to a place safe in the, in the, in the forest. And I asked my interpreter there, I said, uh, what happened? And he said, well, he was one of the guys that didn't go that the chief said, no, we, we don't have room. You know, we have to get him. And he said, well, if, if I'm not going, nobody's going, that was the way he was going to stop it. So that was, that was pretty tight.
0: Pretty close call. Yeah. What's the, uh, I'm sure there's many, but what's the strangest or most unusual thing that you've uh, witnessed or or something that really stands out for you?
1: Well, there's been many, right? But the one that stands out the most was in the Amazon. There's a village I've been going to for many years there, a tribe that is starting to get some outsiders in there now. But um, when I first went there, I was the only outsider. It was the same guy that uh, I told you I, I had the chicha with the warani and during that trip came out of my tent one day and uh, i see this woman breastfeeding her baby and it's not unusual to see uh, native people well first i should say the warani this particular group they uh, they have a lot, they like a lot of pets they have a, they have many they have macaws and parrots and different monkeys and i saw one guy had a marmoset these beautiful little, the smallest of monkeys. He had, I saw him climb down from the roof up up to his shoulder and up to his arm and then encircled its tiny arms and feet around his thumb and then tripped at me like a bird. So you can see how small they are, but all kinds. They have. Uh, they usually have a harpy eagle, like the largest eagle that is a warning signal because they screech so loud when people approach, but all kinds of monkeys and different animals. And it's not unusual to see a native woman breastfeeding her human baby on one breast and a monkey baby on the other. I mean, these pets in this area, in this tribe, but in this culture here, they believe that their pets are, are just like one of them, you know. Many of the pets they get from killing the parents, but still the pets, the, the young ones, become part of the culture. And and in some uh, villages, they, they remain so forever. They don't eat them after a while. That's a strange sight, but I had never seen this or heard of it. Do you know what a taper is? A taper is the largest rainforest animal. It could be like 600 pounds. They're like the jungle cow. They have this gigantic head with a kind of a short prehensile nose. But they're they're giant. They're like a little hippo in a sense. Anyway, I came out of the hut, and I see this nice a uh, uh, naked uh, native woman uh, smiling at me. And uh, she is holding a baby. She's not breastfeeding the baby. But there in front of her is a baby uh, taper breastfeeding. And, you know, even the baby's head was, you know, like three times the size of her head or four times. It was this gigantic animal. And she's sitting there smiling at me. And, and uh, this huge baby... You know, it's probably 150 pounds is, is breastfeeding of her breast. And I asked uh, my friend uh, uh, who spoke Guarani, is this unusual? You know, I didn't understand this. And he, he did not understand my question. And I kept asking him, and he, and he finally exasperated, said, the baby was hungry, so she's feeding it. She's feeding her, her child. What are, you, what are you asking me this dumb question for, in a sense?
0: And this is uh, the baby taper.
1: The baby taper, yeah. Uh, I'd never seen that before. I heard of it. It's interesting.
0: Now you spent a lot of time with that. And you know, see if I'm pronouncing it, Warani
1: Yeah, Warani. Yeah.
0: You spent a lot of time with them, and I, we were talking earlier about intuition and what you saw them and how in tune they were with nature. Oh what did yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. did you see? That was interesting. I was, uh, I was traveling, I was going on a hunt with them, and we were traveling down river in a dugout, and it was very swift water. The river wasn't very wide here, it was maybe uh, 50 feet, 60 feet wide. So even though we were more towards one side of the river, we were traveling very fast in a very, very rapid uh, stream. And all of a sudden, all of the Wairani hunters I was with they started pointing to the other bank, getting really excited, shouting, "Uda, uda!" So turned around, and, you know, it took us maybe 50 yards to get to a place where we could turn around and then paddled upstream to get to where they were pointing. And you could see nothing when I was looking over there, you could see absolutely nothing. When we got to that point and got into the bush, just a little ways hundreds of uh, uda or peccary, white-lipped peccary, which are wild boar, all over the place. Now, maybe you could say that they smelled it, but I think that was pretty much impossible. Maybe, maybe there was some kind of a smell they could smell. But um, that their senses must have been like superhuman to, to get it there. But there was indeed Uda there, or at least uh, uh, we saw fresh tracks and we ended up going on a hunt. But another time, I think the time that maybe you were asking about was, I was with a, a native guy, we were hunting, and all of a sudden he said, there's a, a jaguar over here. I said, well, how do you know? Because we're in bush where you can't see three feet, much less 100 feet or 50 feet or 30 feet. And, and sometimes it is true that you can be in thick bush where there can be animals very close to you and you'll never know it. You know, he says, yeah, yeah. the bush," And uh, and we ended up going to the direction that he was indicating. And after about, I think it was a hundred, 150 feet, we found some jaguar tracks and how could he know, right? There's no way he could, there's no way, you know, that he could know that there was no noise. And then um, what I think it is, is I think it's like a supernatural, superhuman ability that, that somebody would say that causes this. I don't think there's anything super or, or magical about it at all. I think it's just that these people live in the rainforest. This is their environment, and they, they experience things that we think are superhuman. And maybe he knew that that was there when I asked him why. I said, did you hear something? Did you smell something? No, no, no! I just knew I could feel it, and maybe it's just that uh, there—you know—there's always sounds going on in the rainforest, cacophony, insects and birds and all kinds of screeching and grunting. But um, maybe he didn't hear something that indicated there was that animal there, or maybe crickets or some—you know—some kind of sounds were different that he could not explain but that indicated that there and that he had had that experience before many times. And then he, his body his inner senses recognized it.
0: They're so in tune with their environment.
1: Yeah. Incredibly. Incredibly. Yeah. There was another guy. This was in Guatemala. I was uh, with a a native guy that I was uh, walking in the jungle and he said, Oh yeah, you'll, you'll be interested in this. And there were some holes in the ground. So he was chewing a piece of grass. And he, um, he took this grass and he put it, this long stalk of grass, and he put it in a hole, and wiggled it around, and then slowly drew it out. And he drew out this gigantic tarantula that was, gosh, almost six inches wide it, from tip to tip of its uh, legs. And the tarantula was biting the end of this grass and thought it was prey. So it pulled it out. And then he went over to it, put his hand down next to it, and coaxed it onto his hand. And the tarantula walked up his arm, up to his shoulder, across his neck, up one cheek, across both of his eyes, and then down the other shoulder. And then he put it back on the ground. Well, the tarantulas are not going to kill you, but they're... They leave a really bad bite, and in this particular one, they actually throw their hairs off on you, which are um, uh, they irritate your skin. And and then, I mean, maybe if they could bite your juggler, which he was walking across, that could give you some serious trouble. And I asked the guy after. I said, uh, you know, why did you do that? How could could you feel safe doing this? This wasn't a pet. This was just somebody, some animal we found on the way. And he said, well, he says, uh, I wouldn't do that all the time. He says, I wouldn't do it if I didn't feel right. And I wouldn't do it if, like, if I was nervous, I, I couldn't do that. Because the animal could sense my nervousness and could bite me. He says, and I wouldn't do it if I could uh, didn't think the animal was was calm. I could sense the animal was calm. And I said, how can you do that? What's it, What's that like? And he says, I, I can't explain. I just feel it. And so... Um, I think that that's true. I think it's, I don't think it's supernatural. I think it's just a natural thing that some people have more experience with. And probably if we looked at our lives, we could find something that people in another culture would would see supernatural. And, you know, maybe just crossing a freeway, you know, there's no cars around. They would probably cross and get killed. And then they would say, hey, why did you stop? How did you know? Well, we know cars are coming this way. Something as simple as that, maybe.
0: Amazing. Let me shift gears on you, because this is the main topic I wanted to talk to you about, because you had the opportunity to explore where none other than the indigenous people lived, a place that was literally off the map. No no good maps hadn't been explored, and this was your search for the, the source of the Heath River. Now, where where is the Heath River, and why did you go in search of its source?
1: Well, the Heath River is, um, it's funny you say that it's off the map. Actually, it's on the map very clearly, but the source was never on the map. its It makes up the border of the southern part of Peru and Bolivia for about 350 kilometers. And the interesting thing is about it, it's not a gigantic river, but you'll find it on every map and every world globe because it makes the border. Uh, it's very interesting. I didn't really, I knew a little, I knew about the Heath River, but very little. But I was guiding an expedition in Peru into the rainforest. And at that time, there was a a super remote wildlife outpost where uh, biologists, botanists, uh, anthropologists would go to research. in, in, In exchange for their staying there for free. Uh, and having the ability to research and, and a living place and food, they would take the very odd adventure travel group at that time that came in and, 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 wa- and we could, uh, I could take my group and let them walk with a, a, a world's premier scientist at that time. So I brought a group there. This was many, many, many years ago. And uh, was very remote. While I was there, I was thumbing through their library when I say library, it was a shelf with a thatched roof over it. Uh, there was no electricity. There was no plumbed water. This was just uh, kerosene lamps, you know, and, and just uh, something to keep the rain off your head. And I found this, uh, this book called exploration faucet, and it was in tatters, you know, in fact, it had almost fallen through the, the, the floor and into the, the mud below, and I, and then the, I never would have had this expedition, maybe. But uh, it talked about an English explorer that did the first exploration of a river that wasn't too far from there. You know, I forget how many, 100 kilometers, I do know, something like that. It was an unexplored river, and uh, makes up the border. At that time, the border was in dispute between Peru and Bolivia. Funny, it still is today, right? But anyway, um, I read this, this book, it was about the, uh, the exploration diary of this guy, Percy Fawcett, Colonel Percy Fawcett. He was a Royal geographical explorer from England, and he was commissioned by the Bolivian government to map its border with Peru, which was the Heath River. So I became fascinated. He's kind of a character. He has some wild ideas, but, uh. Uh, I became fascinated when I found out that, yeah, the river is still there and had never been fully explored to this day, I found out. So I became obsessed with that. There's not many, many many rivers, especially that are this political boundary that have never been fully explored. So there was a chance for me to do something that maybe nobody had ever done. So I I did a lot of research. I I became friends with a... uh, a map, uh, the guy in charge of maps at the Royal Geographical Society in London, and I was able to get Fawcett's original hand-drawn map, a copy of that, which usually they destroy. I did a lot of research on him. I did a lot of research into the area, talking to oil explorers and anthropologists, uh, missionaries, anybody that could be into that area of the Amazon. And all of them said that... uh, they didn't know anything about it had not been explored, but they all said that uh, it would be very dangerous because the tribal people there would attack us. And uh, indeed in, in um, on Fawcett's map, it shows where he was attacked many times by natives. And he talks about being attacked. And in my research, I found that the few people that had gone up the lower part of the river had been attacked and and uh, people had been killed, had been uh, shot by arrows and killed. As a result, nobody had ever been up there. This was eighty six years before, which was remarkable to me. So I spent uh, about a year putting an expedition together. And the way ours would go was, we um, the Heath River flows into the Madre de Dios, the Mother of God River, which is a large tributary of the Amazon. Uh, Fawcett had taken his party, and he went most of the way up the river. In fact, he went to a place what he marked as a source, but uh, I later found out that uh, it was not the source. In fact, he said at one of his meetings of the Royal Geographical Society that uh, I maybe let me clarify a misapprehension. I never made it to the source. I made it to the headwaters, and and uh, at that point uh, we had some trouble, and we had to retreat. But um, he pulled dugout dugout canoes up the river from the Madre de Dios, the outflow of the river, up to the headwaters, but he didn't make it to the source. And there he, after befriending some natives, first he was shot at with arrows from these natives, but uh, then he befriended some and they showed him a path, a way to go across the mountains from this river, the Heath River, to the Tambopata river, which is most of the time quite distant, But, uh, I found out by getting some aerial photographs from the military that there was a small section where there's just a mountain range where the two rivers came very close and that's where he crossed and then descended the Tambopata back to civilization. My idea was to travel down the Tambopata river, get to that place where they're close. Then carrying inflatable kayaks, climb over the mountains and get to the headwaters of the Heath or the advanced area, then explore up to the source, up the headwaters, the area that had never been explored, and then inflate our, our inflatable kayaks, and then make the first descent of the river that had never been done. So, anyway, we I took it took about a year to organize this. Uh, turned out because everybody I talked to said that, well, You're going to be shot with arrows if you go in there. Then I brought a native headman from a village at the very bottom of the heath, the outflow into the Madre de Dios. We knew there was a village there. That's the only village that anybody knew about on the Heath River. So I brought this headman there. I also brought another native, Bolivian native, that was a trail cutter. He was actually, uh, he said he was a reformed jaguar hunter. He said that uh, he knows now that he shouldn't kill jaguars, that he was doing it illegally, and that uh, we should protect them. But he also said, there's plenty more jaguars out there to attack us, (laughs) so we need to be careful when we go. But anyway, I uh, I assembled an international team. There were several of us. We started with 15. That would be the original party that would get us down the Tampapata River to a place where we'd cross over the mountains. And then the, our expedition party would turn into nine people. We had a, uh, two Americans, myself and another guy that did the funding of the program. We had two scientists, a Bolivian, uh, two, uh, two Peruvians, uh, a botanist and a zoologist. And then we had uh, the two native people, one Bolivian, one Peruvian, and we had a river expert. Is added oh, uh, two photographers, a, uh, an American and a uh, Peruvian. So, to make a long story short, we uh, got our gear together and traveled from Cusco, which is about 11,000 feet, uh, went over the Altiplano over a 16,000 foot mountain pass in an open bed truck. That was horrendous. We decided to do it quickly so we didn't have to acclimatize. And it, uh, we were an open bed truck with all of our rafts and equipment underneath and uh, went for about 35 hours without stopping. The only time we stopped was uh, every couple of hours to switch drivers. We had three Quechua drivers, Navy drivers that would just rotate and just continued over the top. I remember one of the rafters kept shouting uh, colorful sayings like medley queso likey which is kind of a cross between Quechua and Spanish kind of means put the metal to the pedal to the metal. But maybe it's like our sayings, too. If you uh, looked at the the true meaning, it was uh, accelerate cheese, brother. So (laughs) I don't know how this (laughs) thing happened. But anyway, we eventually got over uh, the Altiplano. And uh, a lot of, most of the people were sick from from Sorochi, which is high altitude sickness, because we didn't wait to acclimatize. We wanted to get over quickly. And there was a lot of vomit on the side of the, the vehicle, but we made it over. We got down to the very end of the road, the last part of the road. And this was an old gold gold miners dirt track to get down to this village called Putina Punco. And there we uh, quickly... Pumped up our apps. We we spoke to the headman of that village, and he told us we're all going to die. We shouldn't go in there, which we had gotten a lot
0: before we go there. You had to cross a border, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it, it wasn't. There was so
0: something of that happened there. That
1: uh, yeah, yeah. When we dropped down into the uh, from the Andes into the uh, the cloud forest, the Amazonian cloud forest, there was a military checkpoint because there was. Uh, an outbreak of yellow fever in the area. So all of us had to uh, show our inoculation that we had had yellow fever shots. Well, I had, most of the guys had, some of the native guys had not. And uh, so we had to get shot. But, you know, we were going into an area where everything was going to get wet and destroyed. So I didn't bring my passport or my documents like that. Fortunately, a couple of the people did. Uh, the one uh, There was a, uh, the wife at this point of a um, photographer that came. They both bought their passports, and she was going to take them back when she uh, returned without going the rest of the way with us on the expedition. So we have blankets over, all of us, trying to keep from freezing as we're coming over the Altiplano. The, uh, and now they're saying we're all going to have to get inoculated because we don't have proof. So I thought, well, I don't know what it does if you get yellow fever shots, you know, twice within two weeks. But I thought that's okay until I saw what they were shooting us with. And it was like something you saw in a Frankenstein movie from 30 years, you know, 100 years ago. It was a silver uh, syringe with three finger holes, metal with a long, you know, uh, needle on the end. But they were using the same syringe on every person. They were just refilling it. There was no way I was going to do that. You know, I mean, that's, I'll drink, I'll drink village women's spit, but I'm not going to take that chance. So um, we just faked, two of us were, were in that situation. We just faked like we were asleep underneath the covers. That was the worst thing because then they felt, and then uh, they said, you know, wake them up. They have to get an inoculation. And uh, one of our friends says, no, no, they're sick. You know, they, they can't. Uh, they, they're just sick. Let them be. And of course, why are they, they going to let them be sick if there's well, yellow fever in the area? But fortunately, a couple of our friends that brought their, after they showed their passports and papers, passed them underneath the blankets to us and we showed them our passport and inoculation pictures. I don't know why that worked because, you know, the, the guy didn't look anything like me whose picture I had and The other guy that I was with was not a blonde young woman, which his passport picture was. But we got out of it and we fortunately continued on.
0: So the next part of the journey is the river.
1: Yeah, so we finally made it to the river. Uh, We filled up after uh, getting whatever information we could in the area, which was very little. They just said they knew nothing about the Heath River on on the other side of the mountains. They didn't know much about the Tambopada, the river we were going down.
0: Thank you for joining us. This is the end of part one. Return for part two as Bruce and the expedition descend down into the Amazonian jungle and search for the source of the Heath River. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you can find more of my work As an adventure photographer and writer, photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.